be looking at how we are to quit trying to earn grace. But to do so, I want to just take a moment, and I want to let you know that I spent this last week working on a marketing ploy, and I came up with some uh, statements about Jesus that I'm thinking would work very well. And so I'm going to send those out to you. I want you to hear them, and then just kind of let me know which ones you think are good. So the first one I just want to share with you is God is love. It's not a bad one, right? I mean, that might sell relatively well, or better yet, we've seen love is how we roll, and then you see signs of Jesus. Or maybe this one, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All good, not bad. But I've got one that I think is going to really sell well. Are you ready for it? Jesus is your wrath-bearing substitute. Did you hear me? Jesus is your wrath-bearing substitute. I mean, I think, wouldn't that be awesome? We put that on our, on our shirts, we walk around, and we go up to people and we say, hey, guess what? We want you to know that Jesus is your wrath-bearing substitute. And you're kind of looking at me, and you're saying, I don't know that that's going to sell very well. But what I'm here to tell you today is one of the things that we have to recognize and remember is that Jesus indeed is our wrath-bearing substitute. In fact, it is the very core of the Christian gospel. We must remember and recognize that God's wrath against sin must be appeased. And Jesus is the one who bears God's wrath on our behalf. In a moment, what I'm going to do and what I pray you will see is to cherish the grace of God but one of the things that I think is so important in today's world is this. We hear about God's love. We hear about the love of Jesus. All of those things are good. But very few people are going forward and saying, Jesus bore God's wrath for you. And yet that's the very key to the Christian gospel. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. But before we do... I want to let you know that scholars have said that this passage is essentially the most important part of the gospel. Now, God's word is important, but what they are saying here is these verses, Piper, Martin Luther, and others, are the core to the Christian faith. And so if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what else will. If we do not recognize wholly what God has done for us, by dying on a cross to forgive us of our sins and appease the wrath of God, we're not truly going out and sharing the gospel with other individuals. And so in that, I want to take a minute, and I, I want to just ask you a question. How many of you are excited for heaven? Anybody out there excited for heaven? Everybody excited to go and be with God where there's no more sin, no more hurt, no more pain, no more illness, no more decay? right? We're all excited about that. But one of the things that I want to share with you is this. For God to remove sin from our life and to remove us from the presence of sin, he simply cannot sweep it under the rug. And one of the things that we must understand is in order for God to be a just God, in order for God to be a merciful God, in order for God to display his grace, what God cannot do is change his character. If God is holy, if God cannot be in the presence of sin, what God cannot do is take sin and say, you know what, we're just going to sweep it away. We're just going to put it under the carpet, and hopefully it's not going to rear its ugly head. God's wrath against sin must be removed. And friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, that's why Jesus is our wrath-bearing Savior. We're going to ask a question this morning, okay? And the question that we're asking is simply this. How can we be made right before God? It's a great question. People want to know that. People want to say, how can I go to heaven? Or how can I get to Mecca? Or how can I ascend to the spiritual plane? It's a high question that everybody asks. They wonder, how do they do so? And what's important to see is so many religions will move forward and they will say that we're supposed to transcend or make effort to get to heaven. If we do enough good, if our lives are better 
than they are bad, then perhaps what we can do is we can tip the scale and, quote-unquote, win God's favor. And hopefully, when we stand before God, that scale tips and we're allowed to enter in. But then what we've always said is, is the question that people are always asking is, how good is good enough? But better yet, brothers and sisters in Christ, what I want to share with you this morning is we learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross to save us from our sin so that we're no longer guilty of it. But so often what we don't talk about is the fact that God's wrath must be appeased. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to see in these passages. In a moment, we're going to hear some big words. We're going to hear some things that I think aren't necessarily discussed a lot in Christian doctrine. And so to do so, I want to take a minute and I want to just share with you some things so that as we're traveling through this passage, we can understand the richness of what Christ has done for us. First off, we're going to hear the word righteous or righteousness as well as justice and justified. And interestingly enough, those words come from the same root word in Greek, and that is diakosune. And why is that important? Because at the core, righteousness and justice are what God brings to us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, apart from God, none are righteous, not even one. That's what Paul writes. That's what he declares. And so one of the things that we must remember and recognize is in our lives, none of us are good enough to get to God on our own. No matter how much good we do, no matter how much time or how many times we come to church, no matter how many ministries we get involved in, as good as those are, and they are necessary in the Christian faith, none of those things will tip the scale in God's favor. And so friends, one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of is that none of us have the ability to get to God on our own. Now the other thing that I want to share with you is justification. And simply stated, just so that we understand, justification is a legal declaration of our righteousness in God's sight. It is a legal term. And one of the things that we've heard and we've talked about is the fact that if we were to stand before God on our own, we are guilty of our sin. We are deserving to be set apart or sent away from God. And what we see and know in that is that is hell. And so in that, what we have to remember and recognize is what we are deserving of is to be sent away from God. However, when we are declared righteous or we are justified before God because of what Christ has done, Jesus, as our wrath-bearing substitute, comes forward and says, yes, that person is guilty, but I died for them in their place. And God looks and says, my wrath has been appeased because of what you have done, Jesus. Therefore, this person is no longer guilty of sin because I have laid that sin upon you, my son. That's what we're talking about here. Now, the other thing is, is we talk about redemption. How many, how many people want to be redeemed? Anybody like that term? As we talk about redemption, let me share this with you. It has an economic connotation, okay? The word redemption and reconciliation are similar at their core. And in an economic connotation, we have to see it this way. It speaks to the purchasing or settling of one's debt. And please hear me on this. The purchasing or settling of one's debt. It is not the simple cancellation of it, okay? Why is that important? We're going to uh, explain it in a minute. Okay? Collateral. Something must be used to purchase or settle the debt that is owed. Jesus essentially is God's collateral. What Jesus does is he purchases or settles our debt of sin by dying on the, cro on the cross. 
and he essentially pays our ransom price. So friends, why is this important? Some of you who are essentially economically minded, if I came to you today and I said, hey, I've got a bunch of debt here and I've got to figure out what to do, what would you say to me? If I said, I just want to take it, I want to kind of sweep it away. I just want to push it under the rug. I don't want to mention it. We're just going to cancel it. If you were an accountant, what would you say? You can't do that, can you? Somehow, that debt must be reconciled. It must be paid for. And so interestingly enough, in order to pay for that, what we think is, all right, you have the debt, you owe it, you need to pay for that debt. But here's the problem. What we begin to discover and what we begin to see is the debt that we owe is so insurmountable, it's worse than our national debt. There's no way we're going to be able to pay this off. There's no way that we can reconcile the budget. And so what Jesus does is he comes forward and he says, I'll pay that debt. I'll be the one who pays the debt for you. Here's what's important to see. How does Jesus do that? He bears the full wrath of God on the cross. Friends, what I want to share with you, what we celebrate at Easter is this. We speak to the fact of the horrendous act, and yes, it was horrendous, physically, of what Jesus endured on the cross for us. The nails going into his hands, the piercing of his side, the gut-wrenching agony of the cross. And I'm not minimizing any, any of that, but what we don't speak about is the fact that the full wrath of God was laid upon Jesus to pay for our sin at those moments. In a moment, we're going to read and we're going to hear about either a word that is said atonement or how many of you are familiar with the word propitiation. See a few hands out there, okay? The atonement or the propitiation is what we're speaking about. And I want to share something with you. It's interesting, okay? We're going to see what this means in a moment. Propitiation, all right, the word in Greek is halisterion, right? Now, you're kind of like, why is that important? Am I even going to remember this? But I want to show you the uniqueness of this word and why it's so important for us to look at can be stated either propitiation or atonement, as we see in the NIV. But here's what's interesting about it. The word only occurs twice in the New Testament. It's only utilized twice. Now, the first we see here is in Romans 3.25, which is what I'm going to read in a moment. But the next, the next is actually in Hebrews 9.5. And why is that important? Because it's atonement, or the cover, or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the same word to explain the mercy seat. Think about that for a minute. Propitiation is the removal of the wrath or a wrath-bearing substitute. On the cross, Jesus became the wrath-bearer or substitute for our sin. And Jesus bears, or in the same way, becomes essentially the mercy seat, the covering to the ark to contain and appease the wrath of God. Jesus becomes essentially the wrath-bearing substitute and he bears the wrath that we deserve by having God place it upon himself. And so we talked before about Hebrews. We talked about the importance of our Savior, the fact that he essentially died on the cross doing a one and done to forgive us of our sins. But it's also important to see and to think about the fact that what Jesus is doing is essentially he is enacting the same action of the mercy seat. And so how many of you are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? We remember and we recognize that the mercy seat would have essentially the two wings of the cherubim above them and the placement of the cover would contain God and God's holiness within the ark. Now, to explain that to you, I've used this before and you've heard me say it, how many of you have ever watched Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? 
How many of you remember that wonderful scene where the ark is opened and they say, cover your eyes, and that one guy forgets to do so, and things don't go very well for him? Now think about this for a minute. God's holiness is so great, as God is released, he can have no part of sin, because that is his character. And in so doing, he must be appeased in his wrath. And so, in order to contain God's wrath, the presence of God, his holiness, the mercy seat is what would cover the ark to contain the holiness of God. Now, Jesus becomes the one who bears the wrath of God to bring mercy to us. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. Again, in Romans, as we see here, but then also in Hebrews 9, verse 5. And so let's take a moment. Let's see what Paul is saying. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to uh, take a moment. We're going to look particularly at verse 20. But before we do, how many of you have been looking at the book of Romans? Because what I want to share with you is if you were to read the first two chapters and you were to read about what is going on, the simplest way to put it is the news isn't very good. Paul is laying out both for the Jew and the Gentile that apart from God, we're in big trouble. Apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so in the first part of chapter 1, he explains God's creation, the evidence of it, the fact that we desperately need God. And then in chapter 2, what he does is he turns and he says, okay, here's the thing. So many of you have set apart this law, these laws that you need to abide to in an effort to make yourself holy. By following the law, you're thinking that indeed you are holy, but what I'm going to tell you is no one can follow the law holy. And because you can't follow the law holy, you are guilty of your sin. I want to ask you, how many of you right now would like me to just say, okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to try to follow the Old Testament law to a T. How many of you would be excited to do that? Anyone? Not me. And that's what people were doing. They were following the law, thinking that by doing so, it made themselves holy. But Paul himself, right before this part of the passage, says this. In verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world be held accountable to God. And then we move into this part of the passage. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Think about that for a minute. Therefore, no one will be declared legally righteous because righteous or justification are a same root word. No one will be declared unguilty of their sin by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now our righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who will believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, propitiation, our wrath-bearing substitute through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends that are gathered here, the whole idea of resting in the grace of God and cherishing the grace of God is a good thing. But to fully cherish God's grace, we must recognize what Jesus has truly done for us. And if we do not share with people that Jesus bears the wrath of God on our behalf, how can we fully rejoice in the fact that the wrath that was due to us was not placed upon us, but was rather placed upon our Savior, Jesus Christ? I want to take a minute. We're going to speak to this. The first thing that I'd like you to see in verses 20 through 21 is simply this. Our righteousness before God does not come from observing the law. Now, it's interesting because I'm sure that a lot of us look at that and we know it. We look at it and we say, of course, we don't observe the law, but then what do we do? We may not observe the law per se, but so often in our lives, what we begin to do is we begin to fall to the lies of the enemy, thinking that in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be called good in God's sight. We need to be doing good things. We need to be essentially tipping the scales in God's favor. Or better yet, that perhaps if things aren't going well in our life, or if there are bad things happening to us, because we have maybe placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we begin to wonder and think, does God love me? Is God there? And one of the things that I want to share with you is simply this. What we have to remember is that the law cannot make you righteous. It can only reveal your sin and need for God. And so one of the things that I want to share with you is you speak to people about life, about their, their, their need for a Savior, and they say, well, I've done good things, or I, I think that I'm better than others. What you can share with them is say, okay, well, let me ask you this question. How good is good enough? Because observing the law or trying to do good things isn't bad, but it isn't what gets you to heaven. It is only through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we are able to go to be present before God. Paul essentially says these words. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And then he transitions and praise God for this sentence. He says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Think through this. What Paul is saying is that all through the Old Testament, all through essentially what has transpired to this point, is that the prophets, the law, all of that are pointing to something much greater. They're pointing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And so one of the things we have to remember is simply this. As good as the law was, it could not remove sin from our lives. Only Jesus can do so. And so that's the next point that I'd like to make with you, and we see this in verses 22 through 23. And that is simply this, that our righteousness before God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. If we want to be declared righteous, if we want to have our guilt appeased, if we want to receive grace and mercy of God, we must do so by trusting and placing our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. This righteousness from God comes through faith, notice that, in the subject, Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There is no difference. And the reason that Paul writes that there is no difference is he is writing both to Jew and Gentile, demonstrating that what God has done through Christ is reconciled, paid the debt, for all who will believe. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are from, and it doesn't matter the background that you have. What matters is your faith and trust in Jesus. And then he continues on and he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We read that. And up to this point in Romans, the news is bleak. And Paul's doing that to make a point. He's saying, look, I'm demonstrating to you that apart from Jesus, apart from your faith and trust in him, the news is bad. 
fact, it's not only bad, it's really bad. And a lot of us don't like to talk about that. But what I want to share with you is this. If we don't share the bad news, then how can people rejoice in the good? Because the whole point is the gospel. We talk about the gospel, which is the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to share the good news, the gospel, may we be strong enough to share the bad news. May we be loving enough to share the fact that apart from Jesus, no one is righteous before God. No one is declared just. No one is holy in God's sight. So let's rest in that bad news for a moment because it makes the good news all the much more what? Good. And so interestingly enough, one of the things that I would share with you is this. How do we have the good news? Well, it's by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so simply stated, faith serves as the conduit that connects us to God's grace given to us through Jesus Christ. Essentially, we have the fact that there is our Lord and our Savior, our Holy Heavenly Father as well, and when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, it connects us to God and declares us righteous. Why? Because Jesus was the one who died on our behalf. He was the one who bore the wrath that is due to us. We continue through this and we read these next words. Verse 24, our righteousness before God comes by the grace given to us through Jesus Christ. It says, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, don't read this too quickly because there's a lot that's going on here and a lot must happen in order for that statement to be wholly true. We are justified freely. That's a, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. Those words right there, in order for Paul to be able to declare that, means that a holy God must have the debt of sin paid in full. So let's take that for a moment, like I've said before. If a holy God can have no part of sin, if a holy God cannot have sin present among him, if a holy God's character does not change, then how could a holy God take sin and not, what? Deal with it. It would be unmerciful for God, unjust for God, unrighteous for God to say, I know I'm holy, I know I can have no part of sin, but in order to be fair, I'm going to simply wipe that away. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. And so what does God do? He says, my anger against sin, my wrath against sin, because of my character, because I cannot be part of this, must be appeased. It must be paid for. It must be reconciled. The debt must have a credit to where the balance is zero. And so what does God do? He says, well, I could bear my wrath upon the one who actually owes it. I could bear my wrath upon you, upon me, upon all of us. But the love of God is displayed in the fact that what he does is he says, no, I'm not going to bear my wrath on you. I'm going to bear wrath on my son. Think about that for a minute. How many of you have children? How many of you have a firstborn? 
Okay. Now in this, maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, but we'll just go that direction. How many of you would be willing to go to your son or daughter and say, you know, the world is in a mess. People don't care about me. They don't care about you. They don't care about us. They don't want anything to do with us. In fact, they're actually our enemy. But here's what I want you to do. I can't have my anger just be swept under the rug. What I want or what that should be done, what the people are deserving of, is to have my anger poured out upon them because they are guilty. But I'm going to do this inconceivable loving act for them through you, my son, or for those of you that have a firstborn daughter, my daughter. What I'm going to ask is this, that you take their place. How many of you would do that? How many of you could do that? And better yet, what is so amazing about this is Jesus turns to his father and he doesn't say, nah, I don't want to do it. Don't make me do it. I'm not going to go there. Uh-uh, not going to happen. We read in the book of Philippians that Jesus does so what? Willingly and joyfully. Okay, Dad. Whatever you say, Dad. Yeah, I'll go do that. I'll go down to the world and deal with the sins that the people have committed, deal with the debts that they owe, deal with what they have done. I won't do anything wrong. I'll love you wholly. I'll be connected to you. To the point that Jesus, in his love, that's the love of God, becomes our wrath bearing substitute, the propitiation for our sin. He atones for our debt. He fully takes what we deserve and what we owe and reconciles that budget wholly. And he does so by the grace given to us through Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor Friends, there's so many times in my life, and to be honest with you, as I look in my own pride and in my own life, I consider myself to be a pretty good guy. But as I look and I examine my heart, and as I look and examine who I am amidst the holiness of God, the goodness of God, I really recognize truly how sinful I am. Deserving of the penalty that's laid out for me. I don't deserve to be among a holy God. I don't deserve to be among a God whose character is what it is. And yet, because of, as we read in this passage, the grace that's given through the redemption of our souls by Jesus Christ, my heart cries out for my king. I am wholly deserving of being set apart from God. But because of Christ's death on the cross, because he's borne the wrath due me, by placing my faith and trust in him by God's grace, I am no longer set apart from God I am set apart for God. That's grace. That's the love of God. That's the joy that we share. And we look at this and it says, we are justified freely. Don't miss that. If you guys like marking up your Bibles, um, man, mark that. We are justified. We are legally declared righteous in God's sight freely. We owe nothing 
because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so friends, we look at this and we see that our righteousness before God doesn't come from observing the law. It doesn't come by doing good things. It doesn't come by being better than somebody else. It doesn't come by going to church more than someone else, although that's not a bad thing. We cannot earn our position in heaven. But how we become righteous before God is by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ because God manifests his grace through Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there, and that's why I want to drive this point home. We rejoice in the grace of God. We rejoice in the freedom of God. We rejoice that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we are saved by God's grace through his mercy, which is a wonderful thing. But far too often do we not share wholly why that is the case. We talk about Jesus dying on a cross, and that's wonderful, and I'm not saying it's bad. But we speak to the physical side. We speak to the nails. We speak to the piercing of his side. We speak to the agony that he endured, which I'm not minimizing. But far too often do we not speak to the propitiation that Jesus endured to pay for our debt of sin. Bearing the full wrath of God upon his shoulders that is due to us. And so we continue on and we read in verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Or, if some of you have your Bibles with you, it might say, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away his sin. Hence, Jesus becoming our, our, our wrath-bearing substitute. And so in verses 25 through 26, we see that our righteousness before God comes because Jesus died as our wrath-bearing substitute. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Friends, one of the things that we talk about, one of the things that we shared last week when we communed together is not only is communion a time to essentially come together and recognize the unity that we share in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it's a time to come and contemplate fully and wholly what God has done for us through Jesus. And when we, when we share the bread, when we break the bread, when we speak to the blood of Christ, may this be a reminder not only of the physical aspect of what Jesus did for us, but the full aspect of what Christ has, does, has done for us on the cross, bearing God's full wrath on our behalf. Friends, what, what I want to share with you is this. None of you in Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in him, will ever have to endure the wrath of God. Think about that for a minute. Right, let's, just, let's just take the, the kind of the, now when I was a kid I thought it was great, but now kind of the cheesy aspect of Indiana Jones where that guy's face melts, right? Friends, what I'm going to tell you is, is that's, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to the holiness of God and what will happen to individuals who do not know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God's wrath must be appeased, and it has been appeased wholly and fully through Jesus Christ. And so when you stand before God, you can stand before him in righteousness because of the grace and mercy that's been given and displayed for you because of what Jesus did on that cross, bearing the full wrath of God. We continue on, and this is interesting. Um, it says here, uh, he did this to demonstrate his justice, okay? Don't miss that. Again, we're talking legally. He did this to demonstrate his justice. God cannot be just by sweeping away the penalty that is owed. Now, you go, well, wait a minute. Why can't he do this? Let me ask you something. How many of you right now, if I decided to go out in my car and just take it and whip through the parking lot 
and kind of do uh, one of those commercials, whatever it is, MetLife or whatever, where the guy like wrecks all the cars. Do a couple of 180s and just take your cars out and all this kind of stuff. How many of you would be willing to say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry, you totaled my car. It's fine. Anybody out there willing to do that? None of you? No, you want to get paid, right? Now, hopefully that's why you have insurance and hopefully it's covered. But none of you would be willing to what? Forgive the debt owed. What do we want? Justice. Let's take that a step further. What if it was more of an atrocity? And I won't even go there. What if I were to do something so atrocious to you, so bad to you, that it was completely and wholly unforgivable in your sight? And we went forward, and you know that someone, somebody must pay for the atrocity that has been done. And you go before the judge, and the judge stands there and says, it is clear, it is obvious that Trevor has done this to you. But in my, what? Justice, I'm going to forget what is there. Is that justice to you? No, it's not. And so God in his justice says that the debt must be paid. The debt must be reconciled. What is owed to Trevor must be held accountable for. But the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God is displayed through Jesus because what happens in this legal transaction is God says, I cannot let that debt go unpaid because I am just. And Jesus comes forward and he says, I will take that debt wholly and fully. Whatever is owed to Trevor, place it upon me so that he might go free. He might be declared righteous. He might receive your mercy and your grace. And so all that is owed to me in order for God to be just is laid upon Jesus who bears the penalty, the wrath that I am due, that we are due, so that we can be holy before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, when we speak to this, we need to recognize that Jesus' blood, okay, propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. And we see that and we look and we see evidence to that back in chapter 1, verse 18. So that his holiness was not compromised in forgiving sinners. The world cannot be restricted to the wiping away of sins as it also refers to the satisfaction or appeasement of God's wrath, turning it to favor. The debt must be paid. The debt has to be paid. The debt can't be canceled. But what Jesus does is he comes forward and he says, let me take that wholly and fully for you. And what it does is it turns to favor and so, friends, the other thing that it just so boggles my mind about the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not only does Jesus take my debt, bear the wrath that I am due, but what God does not do is he doesn't say, now get out of my courtroom, I never want to see you again. What does he do? And that's what we speak about, the fact of it turns to favor. When Jesus bears our wrath, not only are we not guilty of what we are due, but the judge says, no, you're no longer guilty, but come, what? And eat and partake in me. My son, my daughter. So legally, no longer are you guilty of your sin, you're absolved of it, but also legally the transaction takes place to where you are no longer set apart from God. You are made his child and you receive the inheritance that you are due. His kingdom in heaven where there is no more sin. 
God's righteous anger needed to be appeased before sin could be forgiven. And God, in his love, sent his son. And this is what what boggles my mind. Who offered himself willingly. Okay, Dad. Okay, I'll, I'll go do it. To satisfy God's holy anger against sin. That's the gospel. That's the love of God. So when we speak about the love of Jesus, when we speak about the fact that God loves us through Jesus Christ, the manner of how God loves us is this marketing aspect that I don't think would sell very well today. Jesus is our wrath-bearing substitute. We see this in verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Speaking back essentially to the sins that were committed in the Old Testament, they had not been fully appeased, they had not been fully reconciled, they had not been fully dealt with, but God in his sovereignty, looking down the conduit of the corridor of time, knew that there was coming a time where the ultimate sacrifice would be made through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he said, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And as we read, as we look in the Old Testament, people look and they say, you know, as I look at the Old Testament, as I read the Old Testament, it's kind of bad, right? Yeah! It's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to demonstrate the fact that God is there and that he cares and that he's constantly coming for his people, crying out to them, giving them means of mercy and love and grace and providing for them. And the people of God, all the time, turn to God, things get better for a while, and then what happens? They go back to their old ways. They forget about who God is. Does that kind of kind of sound familiar in our world today? But what God does is he says, I know there's a time coming in the conduit of history when I will send my son and he will go willingly to die on a cross to appease my anger and my wrath to forgive people of their sin. And then in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. In order for God to be just, right? the debt must be paid. We all agree on that, don't we? If something is wrong, if something needs to be paid, it must have something to pay for it. Hence, God would not be just. The gospel is that rather than us having to bear payment, Jesus is the one who comes in as the substitute and pays our debt, bearing God's wrath. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. Isn't that amazing? God is just through his action, yet we are justified wholly because of what Christ has done. Friends, how can we be made right before God? We see this in this passage of Scripture, and we must remember and recognize that our righteousness before God does not come by observing the law. And our righteousness before God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Our righteousness comes by the grace given to us through Jesus. But most important, our righteousness before God comes because Jesus died as our wrath-bearing substitute the propitiation or atonement for our sins. I want to leave you with this. This is kind of the main thrust, take-home truth for today, and this is simply this idea. Because Jesus died as our wrath-bearing substitute, we can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This salvation is a gift given to us by the grace of God. It's a gift to you, 
holy and freely given. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We come to you uh, with a passage in Scripture that is the, the central crux to the gospel. And Father, I pray that in it, it's not always fun to talk about the wrath of God. It's not a, a fun message, but it is core to the Christian faith. And so in this, Lord, I pray that first and foremost, we would recognize that apart from God, we are all guilty in our sin. That God is so holy, so righteous, so pure, that he can have no part of it. And Father, because God can have no part of it, he must have sins paid for. And so in that, in order to be just, in order to be righteous, he sends his son to die on our behalf. Father, I pray that as we move toward Christmas, as we look to the birth of Jesus, which will then move us toward Easter to the death on the cross, that we would be reminded of the mission of Christ. As Father, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we become excited about our Emmanuel, God with us, all the blessings that we have, all the joy that we share in knowing Jesus and knowing what our destiny is when we've placed our faith and trust in him, that we would be reminded that as Christ came, he came on a mission, and that mission was the cross. And Father, as we go into Easter and as you talk about Christ bearing the cross, that we would also recognize that as terrible as the cross was, what Jesus also bore was the full wrath of God on our behalf. And Father, may that draw our hearts more toward you, recognizing that we no longer in Christ will have to face that wrath. Father, thank you so much for what you have done. And thank you that that sign sealed and delivered. Thank you that we can rest in your mercy and your grace, knowing that we are wholly forgiven, we are wholly righteous, we are justified because of what Christ has done. We do pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.